0: Welcome to another episode of Daf Shui, weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so and I'll give you a Daf or so. This is our first Hadran episode. Hadran is an Aramaic word which means return. At the end of the last episode, we finished the first chapter of Baba Batra, which is called Hashutafin, because that is the first word in the chapter. And we said, Hadran Allah Hashutafin. We will return to you, Hashutafin. So this week we are celebrating the end of the first chapter with a special Hadran episode and a special hadran guest. If you have been following these podcasts, you know that one of the three large sections of Agadah in this chapter is the second. On If you haven't been following these podcasts, why not? My guest today, Professor Alyssa Gray, has just published a book called Charity in Rabbinic Judaism, Atonement, Rewards, and Righteousness with Rutledge Press, and she is pretty much an expert in this material. We will be talking about the book, which is great. You all should buy one or two, and then we will learn a bit of Gemara together. So without further ado, Professor Alyssa Gray, the Emily S. and Rabbi Bernard H. Melman Chair in Rabbinics and Professor of Codes and Responsive Literature at HUCJIR in New York. I have to add, in addition to this book, her first book, Talmud in Exile, and many articles on wealth, poverty, and charity in Rabbinic literature, Alyssa also writes a wonderful daily analysis of the Dafyomi, the daily page of Talmud. That's pretty impressive. So you have me smoked there. Um, Welcome to the pod. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Yeah. So uh, I figured we just Jump right in. The tztaqa material, as you show in your book, the tztaqa material that's in the bavli is not of a piece. It is composed of earlier Palestinian Tanaitic material, Palestinian Amoraic material, and then material which is homegrown in Babylonia. And there's, of course, a biblical substratum. What are the major ways that you think that the idea of staccat changed between these three layers? In other words, like in 30 seconds, what is your whole book about? Wow. In 30 seconds, what is the whole book about? That that assumes I remember what the whole book is about, even though it was
1: published not that long ago. Well, what changes in the Bavli, I mean, what struck me, I mean, what I could tell you about is what still strikes me is very interesting. Is first of all, the attitude toward the poor changes, which is interesting. Um, you do get some uh, interesting developments between the Tannaitic period, uh, the period of the Amoraim of Eretz Yisrael, and the Bavli. One particular change is that the Amoraim of Eretz Yisrael tend to be very warm uh, towards the chronically poor. The Bavli seems to have more of a sense of distance. It's not at all that they think that tzedakah is not a mitzvah; far from it, but they tend to have more of a sense of distance. Uh, from uh, the chronically poor. The Bavli tends to prefer the working poor. It's very warm towards the working poor, but the poor that accepts Siddhaka, there's a bit more of a sense of distance.
0: I'm going to jump in here just for a minute to clarify for our our listeners who might not be as ingrained in this material as we are. Difference between Tanaim Amoraim, and Bavli and Yerushalmi? Yes. Uh, The Tanaim are the sages of the Mishnah, the
1: Tosefta, uh, the uh, Midrashim on the books of the Pentateuch. These are scholars that are active uh, in the second and third centuries. The Mishnah is the magnum opus of the Tanaim. It, it comes into existence as a compilation roughly around the year 200. Uh, the Amoraim. Uh, you have the Amoraim, who are the sages who succeed the Tanaim. There are Amoraim in Eretz Yisrael who are active uh, from the 3rd through the end of the 4th century. And there are Amoraim in Babylonia further to the east who are active from the 3rd through uh, the late, f- into the 5th century. Um, and then, of course, there's the coming together of the Talmud Yerushalmi and the Talmud Babli. In each place that may happen um, somewhat later, whether a little later or a lot later. Scholars continue to debate that, but a a bit later uh, than the Amoraic period. So when we're looking at this material, as you indicated, we have to be sensitive to these various strata, Tanaitic material, which tends to be earlier and from the land of Israel, Amoraic material uh, from the land of Israel. Uh, material from Babylonia. So you have these geographical and chronological strata and the careful scholar has to be uh, cautious about sort of trying to keep these threads distinct so that we get uh, the best possible picture we can of what the material uh, is actually telling us. So as I was saying uh, before about the different attitudes toward the poor, when we tease apart these textual strata, we can see these different attitudes toward the poor. And the uh, other thing that I wanted to note about something that struck me as I was researching and writing the book about the attitude of the Talmud Bavli is that the Talmud Bavli, for all that it presents various theological, different religious ideas about uh, charity, nevertheless, it has this profoundly, uh, for want of a better word, I'll call it a humanistic strain. Uh, the Talmud Bavli really uh, tends more than the earlier compilations from Eretz Yisrael to emphasize the human-to-human aspects of charity and to try to limit the divine role while accentuating the human role. And that really is something that I continue to find fascinating.
0: That struck me a lot, especially the the distinction between in the Bavli where it seems that there are more stories or more about actual people who are poor who are getting money as opposed to the earlier strata where the poor are, are are almost not there. They're just kind of a function. Yes. That's
1: particularly a contrast between Tanaitic literature, the literature of the second and third centuries in the land of Israel, where the chronically poor pretty much are absent, as you indicate. I, they're really not there. I mean, you're giving the money to somebody, but they're not there. Um, and the poor make a greater appearance in the Amoraic literature of Eretz Yisrael, which, as I indicated, is more warm to them. Um, and the Bavli, you know, how this manifests itself in the Bavli is, for example, uh, the Bavli's. Um, attention to distinguishing between, on the one hand, the realm of what's called hekdesh, the realm of the sacred, the realm of the temple, uh, distinguishing between that and charity, uh, even though the connection between hektash, the realm of the sacred and charity, uh, goes back before the Bavli. It's a feature even of non-rabbinic uh, Jewish uh Culture, We see that in uh, epigraphic evidence from uh, synagogues, archaeological evidence. Nevertheless, the Babli is determined to sort of uh, just not emphasize that, not see that as the most important aspect uh, of charity. You know, hekdesh is not tzedakah. Tzedakah is not hekdesh. to paraphrase uh, a statement in Masechet Arachim.
0: That's fascinating because also over the years, a hektesh becomes and also in the the Islamic waqf is pretty similar that it becomes like the ombudsman or the the owner of of like synagogues and and places like that, which is not stuck up, but it brings up um this kind of elision that happens. Less so in the Bavli, but as you point out in the Yerushalmi, between giving money as tzedakah to support poor people, materially poor people, and giving money to support rabbis. Right.
1: Well, that is an interesting thing. I mean, there is that interesting little story in the Talmud Yerushalmi and Megillah about how a rabbi is given funds uh, to support uh, you know, various uh, vulnerable people, and he diverts the funds to rabbis. And the Talmud Yerushalmi sort of goes with the flow. I mean, it's kind of uh, okay with it. Uh, Rabbis are, you know, a fitting uh, set of recipients of tzedakah, but that also connects with a larger difference between the two rabbinic cultures. And this is something that my teacher, Richard Kalman, had already pointed out uh, many years ago, that the rabbis of Eretz Yisrael, they're fine with accepting gifts from wealthy non-rabbis. Bring it on, give it to us, support us. They're fine with that. In Babylonia, and this is something that I've developed myself much more, the Babylonian rabbis, they understand the uses of wealth. Uh, they understand that that can be important, but nevertheless, they construct themselves as being independent. They construct themselves. uh, You have uh, parade examples of Babylonian Amoraim who mysteriously rise to wealth as they become known as rabbis. Where does the money come from? Well, they rise to wealth. They become wealthy. Uh, The rabbis in Babylonia, they're willing to accept gifts under the uh, heading of priestly gifts. In other words, we, the rabbis, are now the appropriate recipients of priestly gifts, but they don't like the rabbis of Eretz Yisrael. They don't really want to be seen as just taking uh, from other people. And whereas uh, the rabbis of Eretz Yisrael are not unwilling sometimes to portray themselves as materially impoverished, you really see very, very few, not none, but very, very few Babylonian rabbis presented as materially poor, and they don't even valorize it ideologically. Rabbi Yochanan in Leviticus Rabbah, a great midrash from the land of Israel, is portrayed as selling off everything he owns to fund his Torah study. No way is a Babylonian rabbi going to do that. You don't. <laughs> you don't get those portrayals there. So we
0: have the, also the story of Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Lezer, where Rabbi Lezer is a poor blacksmith, but again, a uh, Palestinian figure. In Babli, right. One of the other interesting fascinating things that uh, you write about is that the, the rabbis in the bavli arrogate to themselves the role of distributor of alms, right? They're not, the, they're not the recipients. This is an innovation, as you point out. It also replaces the earlier notion of tzedakah's gift to God or is akin to sacrifice, as you just mentioned. At the same time, the rabbis laud the support of other rabbis who are not materially poor sometimes. So what is, go- what is going on here? Is this just or also a rabbinic power play?
1: Well, it may be that. It may be that, uh, look, if you want to um, increase your influence and spread your influence in society, Uh, among people who are not necessarily receptive to your message or who don't yet know that they want to be receptive to your message, um, you know, what are you going to do for me? Well, feed me, take care of me, do something for me. Uh, So this is certainly a way to do it. You make yourself indispensable socially in a particular way, and then you uh, create a receptiveness to your message. Um, In the book, I find that portrayed actually in Genesis Rabbah, a midrash of the land of Israel, very uh, poignantly and directly, where the patriarch Abraham is presented as sort of using his hospitality as a way to convey a rabbinic message. But I think that something like that is tacitly at work, uh, even in Bavel. You know, we are are the ones who will uh, take care of you, and therefore you can listen to our message. So I don't think, even though the rabbis in the Babli, the Babylonian rabbis, appear to be insular, um, they appear to be talking to themselves a lot of the time. Of course, they want to have influence. They see themselves as the representatives of Torah. They want to be seen as such. And the way to do it is uh, by providing people what they need, making themselves indispensable.
0: Right. Yeah. They also, uh, in in the Baba Batra material, there's also lots of regulations about how to make sure that the system appears, has integrity, right? That they, two people have to walk together. You're not allowed to take out from one bag to put in another bag, right? you know, you know, let them mix up your money with the money for Tzedakah because, you know, if they, on the one hand, they put themselves up as the distributors of Tzedakah, but they want to make sure that people will give it to them. Correct. That's right. And that's also
1: the reason that in Baba Batra, later than that b'rita that you just referred to, uh, there's the emphasis that the scholar who's appointed over the uh, tzedakah pouch has to be of the stature of the Tana Itik hero, uh, Rabbi Hanina ben Taradyon. So in other words, you have to have a sage that has a certain uh, stature, so, you know, a certain uh, level of integrity and ethical probity to be in charge of the tzedakah pouch.
0: Right. And I was also, I, I've always been struck by the fact that they call Yushalmi actually, uh, more forcefully than abovely, calls uh, the distribution of tzedakah dina yes. Fashot, capital uh, law. Correct. Recognizing how, how important that is.
1: Yes. And
0: even to the point, as you know, that they wonder, well, if it
1: really is that, then maybe there should be 23, just as there are 23 judges uh, on a uh, Sanhedrin katana, a small Sanhedrin, to adjudicate capital punishment. Maybe there should be 23, but of course, that's not very practical.
0: Right. I think Rashi on the spot says that uh, if you waited around for the 23, people would die. Right. It would sort <laughs> of defeat the point. <laughs> yeah. Right. To change the topic a little bit, one of the transformations or maybe supersessions, I don't know if that's the right word, that you delineate is redemptive almsgiving is generally disfavored in the Babylonian Talmud or by the Babylonian sages. Why is that? And could you talk about how Torah study, surprisingly or perhaps not, slips into the equation? Yes. Well, redemptive almsgiving, I mean, it's interesting. I'm not sure to this very moment
1: that I could, you know, offer an explanation of exactly why um, it is. But, you know, to me, it's all tied up with the fact, you know, the larger point that in Babylonia, they seem to be much more interested in delimiting the divine role and accentuating the human role and redemptive almsgiving really implicates the divine role. Uh, Giving charity, you know, forgives sin. Well, this isn't necessarily something uh, we want to emphasize. And I just kept finding it again and again, these evidences of ambivalence, but even so, as I point out, I mean there is a bright uh, that is uh, that appears several times that makes the point quite directly that redemptive alms giving, if that's your explicit motivation for giving, that doesn't necessarily undermine the religious uh, the religious value of the giving. But the Bobley, it seems to me, is quite ambivalent about it. And as I said, I do think it's just related to this uh, effort to uh, delimit the divine role. They just want to they want to turn down the volume. On the divine element uh, there in sadaqa, they they really do want to elevate the human. Uh, the other khidish that I, uh, the other novelty, uh, novel idea that I uh, think I have in the book about that is I do believe that that is a thread in the bavli and I believe that after the Talmud in the 12th century, uh, Maimonides is the uh, medieval sage who I think most perceptively and holistically picks up on that thread in the Bobbly, But that could be our topic maybe for another podcast.
0: Right. And that actually, I mean, that seems to make sense uh, to me. That made sense to me on another level because Maimonides is trying to downplay divine intervention in the world in general. Precisely. Yeah. One of the interesting things about redemptive almsgiving is that it's in direct dialogue with the Christians, because we are the early church fathers. And so I would love it if you could just say a few words about the world in which the rabbis' ideas of charity lived and how the rabbis were kind of in dialogue with these other religious groups around Stuckai.
1: Right. Well, both the rabbis and um, the contemporaneous, the, the Christian uh, sages and thinkers of late antiquity Both of them really inherit redemptive almsgiving from the Second Temple period. Um, And the scholar Gary Anderson, in his book, Charity, which was published in 2013, Anderson does uh, an excellent job of, of tracing these ideas in the uh, book uh, of the Hebrew Bible's apocrypha, the Book of Tobit, uh, the Book of Ben Sira. You already see in a late stratum of the Hebrew Bible itself, in the Book of Daniel, chapter four, verse twenty-four, uh, you see what looks pretty explicitly as a mention of using uh, the Aramaic word is tzidka, which is the Aramaic for the Hebrew tzedakah, using tzidka, uh to redeem your sins. So these. Ideas Ideas appear in the Second Temple period already. Uh, You see some uh, echo uh, of them as well in passages uh, in uh, the New Testament. So the rabbis are not necessarily borrowing, per se, from their Christian uh, neighbors, whether in uh, the Eastern Roman Empire or in uh, Sasanian Babylonia, but they both inherit these ideas from the past. But there are differences in the way these ideas get, uh, get expressed. Um, in the Christian world. And here I speak with some diffidence because I'm not an expert on the Christian material. uh, But what it does seem to be the case is that you have uh, a tendency to sort of exalt the poor. Uh, even though scholars like Helen Rhee and others who are experts in that material point out that Christian fathers are very well aware that not all the poor are saintly, not all of them take their poverty with the spirit of Christ, Uh, but nevertheless there is a tendency to see the poor as sort of living martyrs, as intercessors, uh, such that giving tzedakah to them sort of buys you uh, that access uh, to heaven. The rabbis don't exalt the poor in that way. Even the Amal Raim of Eretz Yisrael between the third uh, and the late fourth centuries, who are very warm Uh, toward the chronically poor, even they don't go to that extent. They don't see the poor as living martyrs in that sense as as intercessors. So these ideas are indeed percolating. And in the fourth century, uh, redemptive almsgiving becomes quite a a dominant doctrine um, in the churches. Uh, The scholar Peter Brown has written about this, uh, how the the Christian idea that it's not the difference between the citizen and the non-citizen, but it's the difference between the rich and the poor that make all the difference. Uh, the idea, then, that the poor become very significant in Christian uh, theology, the idea that the redemptive almsgiving transaction comes to be viewed as gift exchange with the poor person, perhaps paradoxically, as the one who gives the gift to the gift of salvation to the rich donor, sort of flipping uh, the roles here. This is, you know, very. These ideas are very prevalent. So of course, it's not a surprise. The rabbis, again, inheriting these ideas from the Second Temple period. The rabbis operating in a world in which, as we move into the fourth century, uh, these ideas become much more prevalent and and um, become such a feature of Christian piety and practice. It's, it's no wonder that we're going to see these ideas in the rabbinic material. But the task for the scholar of rabbinic literature is to say it's not enough just to point and say, OK, I can see these ideas. The question is, how do the rabbis represent them? How do the rabbis refract these ideas through the prism of their own rabbinic approaches to Torah? And that's where we see, uh, we see some of these differences. And again, in Babylonia, yes, the idea is there. It's in the Babylonian Talmud. But again, arguably, um, I discern a sense of ambivalence about the
0: idea. mm mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it seems like my, my grandmother would agree with the Bobly because she always used to say money can't buy you happiness. But as long as you're going to be miserable, you might as well be rich. Well, there <laughs> you go. But I, I have to say, uh, if I have uh, uh, just a second to tell a funny sure.
1: anecdote. In July, I was in uh, Jerusalem for a charity conference at Hebrew University, and I happened to be waiting for the light rail up at uh, Ammunition Hill And there was someone who was walking around asking for tzedakah, and a young man went to give to him. And there was this old lady who started screaming, don't give to this person. I know for a fact this person is a fraud. Don't give to this person. And the young man who was giving said to her, kapara, atonement. In other words, (laughs) I'm giving as atonement. And she yells, and of course all of this is happening in very high-volume Hebrew, she yells back (laughs) at him, don't give me this about kapara, knock it off. And I thought, you know, what has this been set up for my benefit? I'm here to be talking about this material and this is unfolding right in front of me. So in other words, lest anyone think this is not current events, I'm here to tell you it is.
0: It is. Yeah. So actually that leads right into my last question before we, before we learn a little. that You write about Staccad drawing from a variety of religious concepts, temple sacrifice, atonement practice, Torah study, poverty relief. And now, beyond that, today, in the contemporary world, what of this universe of associations do you see echoed in our tzedakah practices? Well, that's an interesting question,
1: which is why I was fascinated to get into some of what I went into all too tersely toward the end of the book, because I find that our contemporary tzedakah practices move in different directions. On the one hand, tzedakah merges with a larger social justice agenda uh, which is very understandable, and, and of course supported by the semantic field of tzedakah, so it, it blends into that. And on the other hand, there's been this fascinating, to my mind, resurgence of some of these, you know, real uh, religious ideas about tzedakah that, you know, particularly. Uh, in the anglophone world, had disappeared for a long time. Uh, one of the interesting things, as I point out in the uh, conclusion to the book, is the reemergence, even in the twenty fifteen Reform High Holiday Machzor Mishkan Hanefesh. You know, look what came to Yizkor. Tzedaka uh, returns to Yizkor. So I do find that there's this duality. On the one hand, uh, Tzedaka merging with a larger social justice agenda, a very human centered agenda, and on the other hand, sort of the revival of these religious ideas that, at least in certain Jewish communities, might have been thought to be more abundant, defunct, um, and yet they're coming back. Uh, the whole idea, the uh, challahs in the ark kind of a story, you know, the idea of a person thinking that they're giving something to God, and in reality, they're supporting an impoverished person, the prevalence of that story and its republication in various edited collections is fascinating.
0: Could you just uh, tell the story in short for people who haven't yet read the book?
1: Yes, there are very uh, many versions of it, but in a nutshell, you have a situation where a person gets the idea in his head that he's going to give challahs to God. He thinks that what he's doing is fulfilling the commandment to the priests to uh, put the showbread on the uh, table in the temple. So he gets it in his head. This is a good thing to do. He brings a, you know two, three, however many challahs a week, he puts them in the ark in the synagogue thinking he's giving them to god at the same time unbeknownst to this gentleman uh there's a poor person who comes by and every week uh Sees the chalas, the person needs them and takes the challahs. So you have this interesting tzedakah transaction that unfolds unbeknownst to both of them. The giver doesn't know, he thinks he's giving to God. The taker doesn't know, he thinks he's taking uh, challahs. And then at some point, they discover each other. And here's where different versions of the story um, move in different directions as to whether um, this is a happy discovery, an unhappy discovery, the involvement of a rabbi who either sees this as a good thing or not. Not, But it's a fascinating story. It has been transmitted in different versions, in different uh, Jewish cultures. And as I uh, indicated a minute ago, it continues to be republished in contemporary anthologies of Jewish stories. There's even a website. About this as a pay it forward uh, sort of practice, so obviously this is speaking to people. For all that it seems to be a strange, archaic way to think about tzedakah, it is speaking to people.
0: It's fascinating. It's a fascinating way that people are doing do it yourself Judaism, but drawing at the same time on very traditional concepts and concepts that we thought might have gone away. That's right. Um, I was fascinated by this. I didn't know. I had no idea that that the reform movement was bringing back tzedakah and Yisker. well i hadn't known until i sat in shul and opened the mock
1: store i mean nobody told me i was like wow yeah look what came to Yisker. wow
0: <laughs> okay that's great so you, you want to learn a little yeah let's learn so we're going to open for those at home i'll put up a link to this on the uh podcast page we're on page what is it 10a yes 10A, and we'll start like three lines down from the top in the edition published by the Widow and Brothers Raim in Vilna. Thank heaven for them. Okay. Thank heaven for them. You know, the, the building still exists, apparently. Oh, really? It's, it's not a printing press anymore. Okay, well, if does.
1: we can ever fly again to Europe, maybe I'll go there at some point.
0: <laughs> Here you go.
1: Okay, so you want to read? I'll read. Um, I'll read. It's fine. Um, so, if any of my students are listening, they can get a giggle. I'm reading. Okay, um, okay. Tanya Hayar Rabbi Omer Yeshlo din lahashiv chav marlach. I mean, I'll stop. I don't know if you want to translate or how you want to uh, yeah. go it. Go with it. Let's read and translate. Okay, um, so it was taught. Uh, Rabbi Meir would say, "There, you know, a litigant uh, could uh, respond to you and say to you, If your God loves the poor, mipne ma Why doesn't He support them?'" Emorlo. so if he says this to you, emor Morlo say to him, k'deshe nitzol anu medina shel gehinom. Say to him, this is an order that we may be saved by means of them from the judgment of hell. Rezo she'ela, al tornus rufus harasha at rabbi akiva. And this is the very question that the evil tornus rufus asked rabbi akiva. Imelohechem eloheichem oheva ni'imhu ma enoma mefarnesam. If your God is a lover of the poor, why doesn't He support them? Amarle, Rabbi Akiva responds to Tornus Rufus, Medina in order that we may be saved by means of them from the judgment of hell. Well,
0: we could start. We could uh, start talking about it here. Okay. Um,
1: <laughs> I mean, I just think and, and- it's worth pointing to the uh, this opening yeah. question as uh, sort of the setup.
0: Yeah, I actually went when I when I was going over this you know, uh, whatever it was that I was doing this for the podcast, I kind of went down into a rabbit hole on Bal Hadin. Yeah. Trying to figure out where that came from and was not, um, I mean, I know that, you know, it's it's used as kind of polemicist or antagonist or something like that, but it's but the, to put it in a as a as a litigant, as you said, is you know, to put it in a judicial context is interesting, I thought.
1: It is interesting and it is strange. And it's interesting from the very beginning. Um, you know, yesh lo Baal that the Ba'al Din is responding to you and saying it to you. So yeah, it is interesting. Um, so it's some sort of I mean, I guess it would be some sort of antagonist, some someone who is sort of attacking. The uh what is perceived to be here, the rabbinic, the uh Israelite approach to the God of Israel and the way the God of Israel works in the world, somebody who is
0: opposed to this. Right. And and it seems that this is in a certain way, it seems that this is coming in the middle of a conversation. Yes. Right? If 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 you're if the other guy wants to retort this, meaning that something was already said, and maybe what was already said is. We should support the poor or God is a philoptochos, a Mm -hmm. uh, a lover of the poor. And then he's going to say, oh, yeah, well, if that's true, then why doesn't God support the poor? And this kind of brings to mind the beginning of Tanit, where or in other places where they have these scenes, dramas of the end of days where the nations of the world come to God and God says, you know, what did you do? Why do you deserve to not be consigned to, to hell or whatever it is that the punishment is? Right. And here it seems to be trying to undermine the whole system. That's
1: right. Why are you doing this? God should do it. And again, as I point out in the book, what I find interesting is if you comb through the Hebrew Bible, it never really says that God loves the poor. So, I mean, even that whole idea, if God loves the poor, the premise of the question is actually unsupported, at least by the Hebrew Bible.
0: Right. And this is the only place that it's used. Correct. Um, it's used a lot and this is like one of those places where it's obvious that this is a borrowing I don't know obvious <laughs> but it's a because it's used in the in the Christian literature.
1: Correct. And this entire sugyah, as I point out in the book, and even previously when I published on it, this sugyah, even though it mentions the Tanaim, uh, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Akiva, is as authentically Tanaitic as if Rabbi Akiva was using an iPhone. I mean, this entire thing betrays lateness <laughs> all over the place. I mean, it really is. It, it's purely a Babylonian creation. Um, you know, we don't need to go into all right. that now, but that's right. I mean, it, it's found in Christian sources. This is clearly designed to be a polemical text.
0: And I think it's also interesting that it's Rabbi Akiva versus the Romans, because there are other also famous Bavli texts, which are some like the, the famous martyrdom text of Rabbi Akiva, which is not a, which, which the Bavli portion is not a martyrdom text. It's just a resistance text. Again, there seems to be a Babylonian Rabbi Akiva. Yes. Who's specific Babylonian ends. Correct. Um, Which
1: is not surprising. That's right. The Babylonian Talmud constructs its Rabbi Akiva for its particular religious purposes.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. Should we go on?
1: Sure. Amarle, Adaraba, Zosha tam le Gehenom. This is precisely the thing that's going to make them liable for Gehenom, says Tornus Rufus. Emsholha domeh I'll give you a parable. What does this resemble? It resembles. We
0: have to just point out that it's the Roman governor guy who's doing midrash. I mean, just
1: exactly. It puts us all to shame, right? <laughs> this the evil Tornus Rufus can do midrash. So he says, "Lamelech basar vadam." The situation resembles that of a flesh and blood king, Shakaas alavdo, who became angry at his slave, the be Chavsho bevet and he locked him up in prison. He commanded that the person not be fed and not be given to drink. And a certain person came along and he fed him and he gave him to drink. When the king hears about this, won't he be angry at him? Atem and you Jews, avadim, you are called slaves. amar as it says in the Torah, ki Yisrael avadim. The Israelites are slaves to me, meaning to God. And again, fascinating. Poverty mm-hmm. is prison. The person yeah. who is imprisoned is impoverished. The person who is giving him to eat and drink is the person giving tzedakah, Tornus Rufus's parable is fascinating. Won't the king, won't God be angry? God wants to punish this person, to imprison this person in poverty. Who do you think you are coming
0: along and giving them to eat and drink? This is yeah, the impious. I think that, yeah, exactly. And I think, that's, I think that's fascinating. And two other things fascinating here one is that it is just a given that poverty is violent. Correct. Right, and so that I mean, we have that later on with the Rabbi Binyamin story. Yes, um, we have, you know, and, and so it's just that's just a given. They know that poverty is 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 violent. And the second thing is the second thing that confuses me is always confused when it says all of bnei Israel but for Israel is our servants to me. So all of Israel are servants. So who's then the one giving the t'shaka? Right. Well, it would presumably be one slave who is rebelling by demonstrating solidarity with another. Oh, that's interesting, right? Because it's vahalach adamachad. Right. That adam. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously according to the to the parable, that adam would have to also be an Israelite. Right. But it doesn't. Really, it's kind of funky with the um, all of Israel are and because you, you are called slave, right? So right. adamachad, because you are called slaves. And so then who is the one Adam? Right. You're right that there's a certain ambiguity there, but I do see it
1: as assuming that it is Israelites. Um, in other words, you are all slaves. There's an impious act here, and that one slave mm-hmm. is then flouting the will of the master. The master wishes to punish slave A, and slave B goes and sneaks in food. I mean, that's... Uh, how could that possibly be something, says Tornus Rufus, that God would approve
0: of? Right. Though I'm actually thinking right this minute, obviously anachronistically, maybe anachronistically, that this could be kind of a proof text for solidarity. That it's, you know, the Adam Echad is not of the slaves, but an outside person. Hmm. That's probably not. I, it's an what... interesting thing to think about. Because it uses the term Adam, yes. which is a generic person, right. as opposed to. Right, Yisrael.
1: right. It's not Vahalach Yisrael echad. Right, it's Vahalach adam echad. True, and it's worth uh, it's worth thinking about. But I think even whether it's generic or not, I do think the solidarity point um, is there. Um, but the the construction of you know Tornus Rufus's dark vision is also noteworthy. I mean, his vision of the relationship between God and Israel is really dark. I mean, it's it's a master-slave relationship. It's characterized by anger, by violence. Uh, This is the relationship such as demonstrating this solidarity is something that God will presumably punish severely. This is not something that God is going to appreciate.
0: It's just really a very dark vision. Yeah, it brings to mind, this is probably in- inaccurate, but it brings to mind the Protestant notion of if you are rich, that means you have found favor in God's eyes. Mm. Not the not the prosperity gospel, but the, the world is determinist, and all you can do is live out your role, more or less. But if you are, so therefore, if you're poor, there's something wrong with you. Right. Spiritually. And that's what office is saying.
1: Right. That's right. There's something wrong and don't interfere because there's something wrong. The person is this way because that's the way it's supposed to be. So butt out, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Rabbi Akiva has to respond to this. So Amarlo Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva says to him, as I put it in the book, he fights parable with parable. He says, mm-hmm. So I'll give you my parable. This is comparable to This is comparable to a human king who became angry at his child. And he again imprisons him. Don't don't feed him, don't give him to drink. And again, uh, a certain person comes along and gives him to eat and gives him to drink. melech Asks Rabbi Akiva, when the king hears about this, won't he send this person a gift? In other words, won't he be grateful? And then he says, we are called children. As it's written, you are, Are children to Adonai your God? So fascinating. You know, Rabbi Akiva says, "You want a parable? I'll give you a parable." In this case, yes, we have the king—that's God—but we're not talking about a slave. We're talking about the child. The king gets angry at his son, but is he going to stay angry? Isn't the king going to be moved to mercy by the fact that somebody shows mercy on his child? The king will relent. That's Rabi Akiva's uh, claim.
0: Though it's kind of an abusive relationship.
1: Well, I would say it's not the one that, uh, right, anybody really would like to have, right? The king is portrayed
0: as somewhat capricious. Which is uh, a theme in a lot of, uh, tanaidik Midrashim. yes uh, the king who kills the son or exiles his son and, and then somebody has to come in but like you say again here it's the king who's punishing the son but wants somebody to to uh, transgress the punishment right. The king seems to have a
1: uh, rachmanis, a mercy deficit but the king's Rahmanis is triggered is is moved by the fact that he sees somebody intervening to take care of his son. And it's fascinating to see here the use of this word doron, uh, which appears mm-hmm. a little bit later on this daf in a redemptive almsgiving context explicitly. It appears in Masechet Zachim, The page eludes me at, at, a, at the moment in a uh, sacrificial context. In other words, the word doron has intertextual resonance with all of these ideas. Uh, but here it would be the king that gives the doron out of gratitude for the person sort of saving the king's son from the king,
0: right, and just and also the fact that, that they use the word Doron, which is of Greek origin, yes to 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 use, rather than some other word to reinforce possibly the anachronistic um, nature of the of the right,
1: you know wink, wink, right. We have something else going on here. Tornus Rufus has an answer. He's a Marlow. He says to him, Atem avadim. I mean, okay, you're called sons and you're called slaves. bizmansha banim. When you're doing God's will, then you're called sons. avadim. And when you don't do God's will, you're called slaves. and right now, at the present moment, ain't atemosin Macomb. You're not doing God's will. Uh, How do we know they're not doing God's will, I would ask? Uh, The answer is because this is a period after the destruction of the temple. Um, This is a period of Hester Panim, as it were, the hiding of the face. In other words, Tornus Rufus is uh, rubbing Rabbi Akiva's face in the situation that Israel finds
0: itself in at the present time. Yeah, you might be sons, but not now. He's basically saying the fact that I am here and I am the ruler, and the temple is destroyed, shows that you're not doing the will of God. That's right. Yeah, and I think that this is also kind of a paradigmatic uh, or prototypical rabbinic moment, the fact that they don't even have to explain why, um, how we know that Israel is not doing the will of God, because the, one of the themes of the Bavli is that it's a post kurban a post-destruction text. Yep. Um, and this is kind of a central narrative of the text, is the destruction.
1: Right. He alludes to it very clearly, but indirectly. And that's right. You know, here it is. That's right. I'm here. You're there. You're the slaves. So my parable is the correct one.
0: But Rabbi Akiva gets the last word. He gets the
1: last word, but he he retreats a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. He says at this point, Amarlo, he says to him, Harehu, Omer, now citing Isaiah 58, 7, Halo, faros l'ra'ev, rudim Is it not to give, uh, distribute your bread to the hungry and to take the wretched poor into your home? When is it that you're going to take, or that you should take the wretched poor into your home? Haidana, now the Ka'amar, and it says, Isn't it to deal your bread to the hungry? As I read it, and, you know, we could have a conversation if you disagree. As I read it, what Rabbi Akiva has done is he's made a bit of a journey here. He begins this sugya with a robust presentation of redemptive almsgiving. After his uh, contretemps with Tornus Rufus, by the end here, he doesn't explicitly renounce redemptive almsgiving, but he retreats. He falls back on Isaiah 58.7 seven breaking apart the two parts of the verse as if to say, look, at the end of the day, this is the right thing to do now. This is what the verse says. When are you to take the wretched poor into your home? Ha'idana. Right now you are to distribute uh, your bread to the hungry. In other words, I'm not going to get into more discussion with you of whether God will reward uh, the tzedakah or God will not, or whether God's happy or unhappy, At the end of the day, Isaiah 58 7 says this is the right thing to do right now. Uh, So he retreats somewhat from a robust presentation of redemptive almsgiving. And this by itself, I suggest, is a sign of the Bobley's ambivalence about redemptive almsgiving. It may be true. It may be true. But you know what? We're not going to argue about it at the end of the day. There are arguments for it, there are arguments against it, but We'll do Isaiah
0: 58.7. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with your reading. I, I really like the fact that you, the, you mentioned the fact that he manages to just subtly allide the the rest of the verse and the next verse, which is all redemptive. Almsgiving. Right,
1: right. Isaiah 58.8, the very next verse, Bahalach your righteousness, your tzedakah will march before you, is a glot redemptive almsgiving verse. And that's in none of the
0: manuscripts, which fascinates me. I, also, I only wonder one thing, perhaps there's a, a, more, a, a more radical reading here, which is that what Rabbi Akiva is saying when he says, haidana, now is the time, is that he's reading God against God, right? That he's, he's as you say, he's kind of conceding to Turnus Rufus that, yes, we are we avadim, are we are slaves because the, obviously the temple is destroyed, we're not doing the will of God. But and therefore, God wants us to be slaves or the poor. But still, against God, we say what God said originally: "Give the poor your your bread." I
1: like that. I like that. Um, using God against God, I think that's great.
0: All right. Well, on that note, this has been a pleasure. Yes, it's been Thank a lot of fun. Invite. Thank you for inviting me. So, my guest today is Professor Alyssa Gray, um, the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. And her new book, which everybody should run right out now and get after you've heard how brilliant she is, is called Charity in Rabbinic Judaism Atonement, Rewards, and Righteousness. And that's with Rutledge Press. And I want to thank, of course, producer Ellie Unger Sargon and the beautiful Unger Sargon Studios. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Irmiklat, I R M I K L A T. I'm Alyssa, do you have a, are you on Twitter? Yes, uh, I'm Alyssa M. Gray One on Twitter. And you can read Alyssa's Dafyomi thoughts on Facebook. and uh, hopefully you will join us again next week for a for season two, as in chapter two of our Dafshui podcast. Thank you and have a good weekend and stay healthy. Wash your hands.